Jason Kittens. We are back with another very special stay-at-home self-quarantine episode of the BrandoCast. And today, for the first time on the BrandoCast, God damn it, ladies and gentlemen, we have a real goddamn film director. You might know him if you're a fan of rock and roll documentaries. You might know him from such amazing films as Leonard Skinner, If I Leave Here Tomorrow, Sid and Judy, We Are Ex Japan. But you also might know him as the director of a brand new theatrical release, a very Smiths inspired theatrical release. Simply titled Shoplifters of the World. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Stephen Kayak. Hello, hello. So happy to be here with you, Brendan. Double duty because uh, for the people listening at home, Mr. Kayak was uh, was kind enough to join us on Rock Tales, the Ahmet Zappa-led show that we do on Sirius XM Volume Channel 106, Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Uh, Pacific Coast time. And that was a... Um, Kavi, I was way too sober for that. You should have warned me, dude. I mean, I know rock tales and all, but like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> what the hell? We think that the the title gives it away, but uh, yeah. no, you were yeah. you were awesome. We were all over the place, and uh, but I'm happy to have you back because now I want to talk a little bit about shoplifters of the world with you mono a only, mono. Only, only if we get your uh, morrissey impression la, 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 la. i'm talking to steven kayak he's a lonely director sitting alone in his home you got it yes okay let's go let's so dude it. i really 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 enjoyed the film thanks i'll just i don't want to say too too much about it because i don't want to ruin anything for people out there but I just want to say it's a fantastic sort of it's a to me it's a very sweet movie. I hope you don't mind me using that term. No, no, it is a sweet movie. I got to say our, we got a, a our, our New York Times review today. Thank God. And they 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 use the word gentle, which I was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like it takes strength to be gentle and kind, right? Doesn't it? That's what the man said. Um, no, I'll <laughs> take it. It's true. It is. It's a sweet little gentle movie. Uh, about a tender time in our past, uh, you know, the uh, our our new wave teenage years in the eighties. It was a it was a lot more innocent back then. You know, I mean, we weren't all like uh, euphoria kind of teenagers. It was <laughs> a little more a little a little simpler. You know, well, it's set in nineteen eighty seven in Denver, Colorado, uh, where Liam Smith lives with his family. My mother lives in a University Heights. Thank God uh-huh. she doesn't listen Great. to the show; otherwise, she would cut me out of the will. But um, set in nineteen eighty seven, and the and the film is sort of centered around sort of two groups. There's a group of friends um, who are co- uh, spending the night out, one of those sort of night uh, life changing nights out in the town. But they're also processing the breakup of the Smiths, which happened in 1987 when Morrissey decided he didn't want to deal with Johnny Marr anymore and vice versa. But it also centers around a young boy played by Eller Coltrane, who hijacks a radio station run by Joe Manganello, Pittsburgh's favorite son. That's right. Uh, who plays Metal Mickey and Eller Coltrane, whose name is Dean in the movie, hijacks the station, holds Joe at gunpoint. And forces him to play the Smiths, a metal DJ playing the Smiths. So the scenes between the two of them are absolutely my favorite in the movie. And of course, I don't think it'll ruin too much by saying over the course of time, they do sort of come to respect each other on a certain level, which is really fun to watch. 
And the group, but the amazing thing about it, the most important question I have for you today, how in the hell did you get 20 Smith songs in the movie? <laughs> we paid for them. Um, <laughs> what we did, we paid for them, dude. Uh, yeah, you know, weirdly, we wrote a we wrote a script that they liked. Uh, we got a thumbs up pretty early on. Uh, you know, we had we had a little insider kind of uh, a bit of an inside track to uh, Mister uh, Morrissey and Marr. Uh, Johnny was in my documentary about the late great Scott Walker. Uh, you know, the cult musician of the '60s turned avant garde noisemaker. Um, so uh, you know, they were. Uh, the walk scott and the walker brothers big influence on johnny and the smiths um so i interviewed him uh up at the night and day cafe in manchester many moons ago so uh and then you know there was like a, on a morrissey's 500 managers uh at the time uh was someone i knew as well so you know we had a little bit of uh an inside track there and then yeah they just they dug it and they gave us a thumbs up Providing, of course, we could come up with the uh, the price tag, which was significant. And that's why it took like 10 plus years to actually get it on the screen. It was hard. But, yeah, you know, we did it. Well, we look, as, as a fan of the Smiths and a fan of the movie, the payoff is massive because automatically you're now in the pantheon of the most amazing soundtracks ever in the history yeah. of movies. Truly, uh, I, a spoiler alert. Bark at the Moon is in the movie as well. <laughs> it is. It is. You had to throw a little bit in there for Full Metal Mickey. You know, he's got Bark at the Moon. Uh, we, I think we had money left over for like one Bronski Beat song. And uh, I had a bunch of others written in, but we really were so broke at that point. But, uh, you know, some some friends in the music sync world totally came through. And we got a... We got a cool 80s tune from uh, Big Dipper, which I believe they're a good old Boston band. We're all going out together. Remember that one? Oh, yeah. Um, very cool, culty tune. We have a bit of a deep cut from a certain ratio that's snuck in there. Um, and then just some library music, you know, that if you don't notice it's in there, you're not going to notice. And then uh, we had a dude do some score. Ryle Jones, good pal of mine, does it does some work for the great Matt Whitecross, who's also another very accomplished uh, music documentarian, and has made some features too. He did the uh, Oasis film. If you've seen that, Matt's a good old pal. And so, yeah, yeah, I wanted more, but you know, we got twenty Smith songs in there. We're good. It's insane because tr truly, what happens most of the time is they'll pay, someone will pay for one Smith song, and then you're forced to deal with the premise without the great music. But this has the most. It's just amazing. And then the other thing about it, minor spoiler alert. Let me just say, peppered peppered here and there in the dialogue are some key uh, key phrases or key moments from Smith songs as well. Do you have, did you have to pay for that? No, no, no. I mean, if you, if you know your Smiths, right. I mean, the lyrics are all stolen anyway. Right. I mean, he stole from everybody. It's all pieced together from bits of like, you know, plays and poems and literature movies, you know, the, the whole Smith thing. It's, it's, there's a great book called the Mazapedia, which literally goes, it's the encyclopedia of Morrissey and the Smiths. And you can, it's really cool. It just breaks down everything A to Z and all the references and things that he, they liked and were inspired by and other connections and stuff. Uh, 
So yeah, we, we kind of went deep. There's the smattering of lyrics, but we just nerd the, the hell out on it. You know, you've got, you know, we went back to source and started stealing lines from the plays that inspired the lyrics. So you've got some Sheila Delaney, got some Oscar Wilde. There's a little like, you know, long day's journey and tonight there's some stuff from Saturday night and Sunday morning and a taste of honey and all that stuff. And, and just lyrics from like, you know, Linda Sterling, who was Morrissey's best friend at the time, who went on to design out like the, she, she's a, an artist. She made that famous orgasm addict, 45 single art for the Buzzcocks. Uh, she had a band called Ludus for a, a hot second. So we got Ludus lyrics in there. I mean, it's, it's pretty silly, but you know, it's, it's, it's an Easter egg rama there. There's just tons of referential, uh, bits all littered throughout in the design and in the the, uh, the script and all that stuff so well it, and it's super fun one of my other favorite moments is when metal mickey basically says of panic well this is just metal guru by t-rex <laughs> it, it is <laughs> it, it is, is. Like, yeah it is <laughs> and then another great moment and here's a question for you mm. uh when uh, uh joe manganello pittsburgh's favorite son uh, gets on the mic, he says, uh, during one of the commercial breaks, he basically says, Gods of Metal, forgive me. It's another another one by the Smiths. I have to play another Smith song because I'm being yelled up at gunpoint. Who, Stephen Kayak, would you define as the gods of metal? Gods of metal, forgive me. Well, you know, you got just Lemmy kind of hovering over. I mean, he he grew his Lemmy mustache specifically for this role, you know. You've got you know, the gods of metal living or dead, right? It's, it's, it's Ozzy. It's Lemmy. It's, uh, Rob Halford. Oh, Rob Halford. That's the movie I want to make. Actually, have you read it? Have you read his book? The new Rob Halford, uh, autobiography. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Because we're, we're, we are fingers crossed. We are dying to have him on rock tales. Oh God. Can I co-host? On that day? <laughs> oh my God. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. That's a, that'd be a score. I had all the, I was, I was, I, I was a little metalhead. I was a little metalhead in like junior high. I had all of that stuff, you know, it's just so eighties, right? All of a sudden you turn new wave and you got to freaking hide your metal albums under the bed, you know, in case anyone catches you, but I still have that stuff. I mean, it was, it's easier now. I think when you get older to like, like everything, but it was a bit more tribal back then. But, uh, yeah, man, Rob Halford. Lemmy, Lemmy for sure. And Kiss, you know, Kiss. I was a member of the Kiss Army when I was like eight. And we got a bunch of Kiss posters in uh, in Mickey's DJ booth. Yeah, well, it's fantastic. And I'll, I'll just share one little, one little Gods of Metal story with you. Mm. My first, well, there were many, there have been many Hollywood heartbreaks. One of the, one of the big ones was 20 years ago, Ahmed Zapp and I sold uh, a pitch to MTV for an animated series. And it was called Metal Wolf, The Misadventures of a Time-Traveling Heavy Metal Band. They bought the pitch. They produced the full pilot, spent almost a million bucks. And the premise was it were four metal dudes from Fairfax High School circa 1985. And they had a band called Metal Wolf. And on their way to a big gig at the Troubadour, they crashed their van. And they had, a, of course, they had a talking dog who was their van driver. Coors. So the whole idea was the gods of rock, Lemmy, Dio, and Rob Halford, the gods of rock decide that Metal Wolf can't die. So they give them, they bring them back to life and they give them the power of time travel because then in 2001, boy, am I blowing this pitch. Because then, <laughs> because then. You in already sold it once. 
Right. We already sold it once. But then in 2001, Rock was dead. So the gods of rock, Lemmy, Dio, and Rob Halford, give them a time-traveling, they make they turn their van into a time-traveling machine, and they give them a quest, which is you you guys have to find the specific moment that metal died and you have to fix it. So the whole the whole series would have been them just doing different adventures. This is a real I, the, the executives are gonna ask me to leave the room right now because I have really lost my ability to pitch a, a, a project. But in the in the pilot episode, they determined that Celine Dion killed rock and roll with her song My Heart Will Go On. So the only way to stop that from happening was to go back in time and stop the Titanic from sailing or from <laughs> sinking. From sinking. That. And Blah blah blah, and yeah. So when they when they stop the Titanic from sinking, that that unleashes the demon baby. Blah blah blah. Uh, but the, the, it was a huge project for us, and we got to do we got to produce our own metal music with the great Jason Nesmith, Mike Nesmith's son, who's an incredible great. guitar player and musician. Great. And we we wrote the songs, we wrote the theme song. It was a very sort of Gilligan's Island kind of theme song. But uh, to have the gods of rock was a huge thing for us, and we got to meet with Lemmy. And with Dio, and people are sick of hearing uh, my Dio story because we we went and met Lemmy and Dio backstage at the Maiden Show in 2003 at Irvine Meadows. Wendy okay. Dio, Ronnie's ex-wife and manager, yeah, took yeah, Ahmed yeah. Knight down to, to meet with them. And the, the greatest moment of my life is when Ronnie James Dio held up a Boddington's and turned to me and said, Would you like a Boddington's, Brendan? <laughs> That's your famous Dio story. Oh that's, yeah, that, that's my Dio I'll story. A, I'll take a Boddington's and Lemmy. Boddington's. Lemmy, his manager. Lemmy was in his trailer, and his manager came to us, and he's like, "Okay, Lemmy's been up for four days on speed, <laughs> so um, you guys need to go in there, and um, you just need to be cool. If he attacks you and makes fun of you." Uh, or harasses you, you have to punch back because if you don't punch back, he's going to disrespect you and this project is off. So we were like, holy fucking shit. God damn it. We're going into a trailer <laughs> to talk to a speed freak about getting his permission to use his likeness for this project. But we go in and Lemmy couldn't have been sweeter. All he wanted to do was show off his cowboy boots, which he had just had custom made. Yeah, he did. Fantastic. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about Mr. Kilmeister. You know, he can. It's like that. It's like that Spidey sense, right? He knows. He knows you're one of the tribe. He's not going to fuck with you. I had a friend who worked at Book Soup on Sunset in the early '90s, and the and the clerks behind the counter were discussing what's the easiest way to kill someone. And out of nowhere, with a stack of books in his hands, Lemmy appears because it's like a block from his old apartment, and he goes, "The easiest way to kill a man." is to put a bullet right between his eyes. <laughs> From a man who probably knows. Yes. Thank you, Lemmy. Right, so that's, so I've just vomited, uh, I've peace. just vomited my gods of, of metal stories on you. I love that's, it. I think it Mr. needs Kyle. to come back, man. I don't know. I'd, I'd, I'd go back out with it. That's a great idea. Uh, with not me pitching. <laughs> with, with Ahmet in charge of pitching. But they, they made the pilot, and the music is great. Anyway... Anyway. Blah, 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 blah. The reason that I've asked Mr. Kayak here today is we are going to nerd out on something that he is an expert at. Like I said at the top of the show, Mr. Kayak has directed a whole bunch of fantastic music-themed documentaries. So today on the BrandoCast, we are going to get into some of our favorite rock docs. So without further ado, Mr. Kayak, 
what is your first choice? My first choice, I got to say, slight, uh, you know, shoplifters related pick. I believe during some early solo shows or at some point, I know Morrissey would open, you know, open the shows with, you know, what, you know, that entrance music, any band, right? The entrance music, it's always like that classic tune they're going to like walk on to. For a while, he was using the Cold Song by Klaus Nomi. No Klaus Nomi? You know what I'm talking about? I know Klaus Nomi, but Klaus, I don't know Klaus Nomi. Yeah, Klaus Nomi. Early 80s, New York, downtown. This uh, German, a German artist who is obsessed with opera, but also like he's kind of also an alien, right? He's got these little pointy horns. He styles his hair up like little horns. He wears these really abstract outfits, white kabuki makeup. He was just like downtown new wave, just did these nutty performances. We kind of sing with this falsetto operatic voice with really chilly, cool uh, operatic music, a bit camp, but also really meant it. So yeah, he had like one amazing debut album. He actually had two records, but like he did score a big record deal. If you ever saw Erg, A Music War, that great 80s uh, like kind of concert documentary, just it's just basically one cool performance after another of all the great, cool downtown, I believe it was like downtown New York music uh, scene, a lot of bands and stuff. Klaus is in there doing his famous song, Total Eclipse of the Sun. Uh, which is great. I mean, he's he's a kook. He covered Ding Dong, The Witch is Dead, famously appeared on SNL along with Joey Arias, another you know legend of the downtown New York uh, club scene, as Bowie's backup singers. I, I'm going to get the year wrong now. Maybe 78. It's Bowie singing, Boys Keep Swinging, and TVC 15. And they were his little new wave backup singers. Um, it's awesome. He's an awesome dude. And uh, there's an amazing documentary called The Nomi Song about Klaus Nomi. It came out in 2004. A woman I co-directed my first documentary with. I made a film called Cinemania. That's the first doc I ever did in uh, 2001, two it came out, um, about manic obsessive film buffs in New York City. She edited this. And the filmmaker is a guy named Andrew Horn, who sadly passed away in 2019, very recently. Rest in peace, Mr. Horn. Uh, it's an awesome, awesome documentary. It's just one of those classic, like, who the fuck is Klaus Nomi? Oh, wow, this is amazing. It just cracks open that alternative universe. And uh, it's done with such loving care. Absolutely crazy little interviews. He interviews Klaus's German aunt and can't film her, so he creates like a dollhouse diorama out of it. I mean, it's super handmade, super creative, amazing footage. And yeah, and Klaus, uh, one of the first kind of quote-unquote celebrities to die of AIDS. We lost Klaus in 83, really early. So it's a total time capsule. It's really awesome. I mean, it's New York, it's New Wave, it's 80s, it's it's gay, it's punk. It's, it's, really, it's really cool. One of my favorites. Okay, yeah. awesome. Yeah. Fan, and, goddamn and, tantric. O-M-I, know me. Klaus Nomi. The Nomi song. 
you know, you said something that uh, kind of sparked a little question in my head. I want to go back to that. Oh, actually, first film. actually, I'm sorry. Before, can, don't lose your train of thought. But I also have to say, Andrew also made a film. The next thing he did was called "We Are Twisted Fucking Sister," which is another <laughs> that great I know. documentary. Yes, he, that's the same director. Okay, fa- kind of, fabulous. Because that's a that's a bonus that's a bonus documentary, I think, for the yep. people at home, and yep. that which chronicles Twisted Sister and their sort of their heavy Long Island period. Yes, be- you know, before they they truly broke on MTV. Um, and we get it gets a little name check in the in Shoplifters. The DJ kind of throws that out. We got, and if you if you're looking, we got a little Twisted Sister logo right there on the on the mixing desk in honor of Mr. Horn. <laughs> now let's go back to. Uh, was something that you just you just sort of dropped the information out there and rolled right through it. Let's go back to your first documentary, Cinemania. Mm-hmm. What uh, inspired you to make that movie? Oh, geez, it was like I I had done a narrative that like sank without a trace, and I was living in Boston. I think I owed so many people money. I just left in the middle of the night and moved to New York. I'm like, I'm out of here. Start again. Hit reset. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was weird. I was, I had been asked to do a short for, uh, I don't know if you remember John Pearson, the great, you know, independent kind of consultant producer guy, John Pearson, who was, you know, behind things like clerks and really discovered a lot of the early and like supported a lot of the early Indies and Spike Lee's she's got to have it and all that. Um, he had a show on IFC called split screen, which if you have criteria, I think it's criterion. You can go back and look at all of them. It's like this great like '90s TV DIY little magazine show, all about independent filmmaking. And they they asked me uh, to do a segment. They're like eight minutes, and I had met this dude Jack, and this is his real name, Jack Angstreich, right? <laughs> Angstreich, the reign of angst, uh, who was a a crazy film buff. He was like thirty something living on an inheritance, living like a character from Grey Gardens in this like pack rat whole apartment, just packed full of garbage and stacks of books. And he didn't do anything in life but go to the movies every day, all day, two, three, four, sometimes five screenings, making lists, charts, calling projectionists, making sure the prints were in good condition and just running around town. And uh, so I proposed a short about a film buff and through him, like, got introduced to this subculture of the New York cinephile. And they are beautifully crazy people. I mean, they're super eccentric. A lot of them are total social misfits, but they only ever just go to the movies. These are people who don't do anything else. And at the time, it was like, you know, starting to be a bit of a dying culture, right? A lot of, like, the good old art houses were closing, and they were like a dying breed. And as I was making this short, I just was shooting Jack one day and there is, I show up and there's this German woman filming me, filming him. And she had been working in New York or going into the new school, working as a ticket taker at the Angelica and met all of these people and thought, what a great documentary. That's a terribly long story, but this is how it all happened. Anyway, met, she, we just ended up joining forces because she had some German financing and needed help. So it was, you know, like most decisions in life based on money. Um, it's like <laughs> I get paid in francs. I mean, francs, I'm sorry, in Deutschmarks. Um, and I got to edit in Berlin for, you know, eight months. It was awesome. Yeah. We just, uh, it was a great little door opening. You know, I was like, I don't really want to make documentaries, but this is fun. And, uh, 
you just couldn't make these people up. So it was kind of like chance, you know, that this this career found me. But the film's a hoot. It's kind of a little a little cult classic. It's been kind of revived. There's a new digital uh, version of it out there. Uh, you can find that. The Cinema Guild did a, a reissue of it not that long ago. So when you did your first screening in New York, did you have all those characters uh, in the theater? All of them. Well, the end. The film ends with them watching a cut of the film, right? <laughs> and then like, and then like talking shit about it, you know? Uh, oh which, god! And they're like, they're like, oh, it's on digital. Yuck! I don't believe we just <laughs> sat through this piece of shit. That's terrible. Um, we ended up, we did end up making a thirty-five print off of mini DV. Who does that? I mean, that you did that back then, right? The weirdest thing. I have a thirty-five millimeter print of this documentary that was shot on mini DV. It's like rotting in my parents' basement. Actually, I think one copy is uh, at the Museum of Modern Art. So fun little film. Uh, Are you aware of the uh, the cinephile f- uh, subculture in Los Angeles? I mean, I would imagine yeah. it's, as, it's as deep and crazy as as New York. It is. It's it. Each city kind of has them. New York was so specific because they could literally walk, run, or get cabs. Like it was, they were just you know kind of buzzing around the city. Uh, it's a lot easier. You know what I mean? Like getting around here, not the same. One of the characters, Harvey Schwartz, who is nicknamed the running times guy, because he's a bit of a rain man. He, he knows the running times of every movie. Wow. Like he just, he just, he can watch a movie and go 98 minutes. Like he just knows it. And if it's listed wrong in the program, he like, it said 96, but it's really 98 and a half. Uh, he's just this kind of, you know, sponge for running times. He moved here. So now he lives here, and I would see him every single time I went to the uh, the Newark, and uh, he still calls me at least once a month to chat about movies. Wow. So the pandemic has been uh, brutal for these people. Oh, God. I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing. I mean, some of them just refuse to even watch stuff on video. That was like how hardcore right? it had to be in their original aspect ratio and their original format on a screen. Like we were filming Jack once and we went to see Billy Wilder's The Fortune Cookie at Walter Reed. And, oh, God, it was a pan and scan print. And he, had to, he stormed out, <laughs> he to stormed out. And we had to go across the street to a bookstore to look at a book to make sure he's like, I thought it was in CinemaScope. Yep. CinemaScope. Ugh. scan 35 pan and scan print the horror wow yes fantastic that yes. that is uh i gotta that i gotta check out i didn't i i you know um steven in real life knows my sister-in-law uh documentary producer diane becker shout out to no, diane sir. we've made uh, six films together you made six films with diane becker i have yeah fan goddamn tastic all right why don't you lay on us your next pick for rock and roll documentaries I'm going to pick something that's uh, just out now. Uh, it, I, I got to look at it because uh, it was it was vying for an Oscar nomination. I wish I, I voted for it. I, I wish it had made the cut. Absolutely fantastic film. I think it's available. Uh, I think it's like a video on demand release right now. I'm sure you can find it. So Mr. Soul. Have you heard of Mr. Soul? I don't know Mr. Soul. What is so Mr. Soul about? Freaking good. It's about Ellis Haslip. He was a producer and a host of a show, a music and talk program that aired on public television from 68 to 73, uh, aimed at a black audience. It was called Soul. And uh, it was kind of, it was the progenitor of a lot of what came later in like, you know, like Soul Train or, you know, other kind of entertainment 
shows, but it wasn't just music. I mean, he had uh, he had get it was like a talk show with music. Um, it was super funky, super edgy, you know. And he gave exposure to early to people like Stevie Wonder, Wilson Pickett, Al Green, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Uh, like you get McCoy Tyner is on it. Um, Roland Kirk, uh, you know, uh, as a guest spot. He was friends. He was a black gay man in the 60s and 70s, hosting and producing this show. Uh, he was friends with James Baldwin. You know, uh, he had Tony Morrison on the show. The Black Panthers came and Stokely Carmichael was on. I mean, it's and it, it's just one of those docs that like, again, it just blows open this world. Like, I didn't know about this show. Uh, it was short-lived. It got canceled and shelved after just a number of years. But it was uh, groundbreaking. You know, public. it was on public access, I think, public television, uh, in just a few markets. And then it kind of started to expand. But it was really like a revolutionary black power moment for television. Like, it had never happened before. Like, a black-hosted, produced, you know, show for black people. Uh, it was musical, it was political, and the documentary is awesome. It's really, really good. Uh, written and directed by uh, Melissa Haslip. Fantastic. Mr. Soul. Uh, I love it. I I'm, I'd want everyone to see it. I think it's a, an awesome film and a wicked cool story and just like great, great, great archive. Like no one's ever, you know, it's it's been under wraps for years. So the, uh, foot of the, the, the found footage is ridiculous. Oh, it's ridiculous. Well, I mean, they have they have the show. They have all the yeah. footage from the show, right. which is like, holy crap, Roland Kirk, right? Who played, what, four saxophones at the same time? <laughs> you know, uh, some of the first TV, you know, I think Ashford and Simpson debuted as a actual group on this show. Wow. Uh, one of the first TV appearances of Earth, Wind and Fire. I mean, it goes, it's it's early. It's very cool. Wow, that that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. Quick tangent. Quick tangent, your friend Brendan had a very short-lived cable access show, Eagle Rock Cable. It was called La La Land, (laughs) and it was basically a podcast, but on cable access, where I would talk to some of my quasi-celebrity friends at the time. This was the summer of 2001, and I would talk to them not about the business, but about the city of Los Angeles. So so Neil Flynn from uh, Scrubs, what's the fastest way to get from Silver Lake to Santa Monica? Go. And just really r- ridiculous stories about um, about L.A. Where's the where are the best tacos in the valley? That kind of thing. But my short lived experience at Eagle Rock Cable was amazing because all of the lunatics that had their own shows on cable access would hang around the studio, which was on San Fernando and Fletcher down in Dirty Studio. Uh, oh it was yeah, just a, a wonderful little world. And, but I I did like seven or eight of them, and then nine uh, eleven hit. And it just felt so frivolous and dumb. Uh, you know, the world, it felt like the world had changed and it was just ridiculous to, to do such a, a fluffy kind of show. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then like, you know, public access just died. Hasn't, I mean, is there still, are there still like public access? I don't know. Shows? I mean, it seems so, it's like an anomaly. I just, I remember when I, when I moved to New York in, I wonder I moved to New York 96 or something, you know, like what's the first thing you turn on the Robin bird show, right? You know, porn star, Robin bird and her public access show, uh, like stripping people and, uh, just amazing, an amazing world. I mean, remember the old TV party, right? That like classic kind of new wave punk New York public access show. I think Chris Stein from Blondie was like a co-host, right? 
And uh, there's a great doc. <laughs> we got like 20 new documentaries to talk about TV. There's a documentary about TV party. That's really freaking great that I would recommend. Is that out? Is that out? That's, that's available somewhere. That's gotta be, that's a pretty famous one, right? TV party documentary. Yeah. It was a 2005 watch. Now I think, uh, for a dollar ninety nine on YouTube, how about that? <laughs> nice, what a bargain! I've been watching vintage kung fu movies via YouTube, the ones that are not on Amazon <laughs> right. Prime, because my my yeah. nerd my nerd brain. Mm-hmm. I love Shaw Brothers, specifically Shaw Brothers vintage kung fu. So late sixties to early eighties, Hong Kong cinema. Uh, those are, that's how I like to relax at night. Just turn my brain off and watch come drink with me or five deadly venoms. Uh, most of them are on Amazon prime, but the ones that are not, some of them are on YouTube. All right. Blah, blah, blah. I'm going to throw, my, 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 uh, my unwind is, uh, Match Game 78. That's like my favorite <laughs> thing in the whole fucking world. It's there. <laughs> it's on Amazon Prime. It is. I just got through the entire year. It's like a thousand episodes. Yes or it's, no, everyone's loaded during those shows. I like to, because, you know, they taped about four or five in a row. Like they would, they do them because the, uh, the host, um, Gene, Gene Rayburn, Rayburn, lived in, I think on Cape Cod or something in Massachusetts and would fly to LA for the like long weekends. They tape a whole bunch of them in like two or three days. So, you know, it's funny to see which episode is like maybe third or fourth in the day because by the time they get to the third or fourth, they are all schnockered. They're bombed. The inappropriate touching gets worse. There's a lot more like lip kissing and inappropriate comment. It's so inappropriate on every level. And then of course, Charles Nelson Riley is like camp is tits and like nobody could quite figure that out in the seventies. Um, it's, it's awesome. I love watching that over yes. and over and over again. Uh, yes, kids. Me too. There, it's it's you can't you oh can't boy. fathom the depth of the inappropriate by today's standards flirting that was going on. Uh, holy Christ! One of my favorite Onion headlines is uh, area waitstaff tired of sleeping with each other. So I can't imagine what was possibly happening behind the scenes at the match game. Because oh, you boy. always have like you have you have Gene Rayburn, Charles Nelson Riley, uh, and Richard dude, Dawson, Richard Dawson, and then there's always like hot young actress who never worked again. Exactly. <laughs> and and when there's a new host, like when there's a new guest host or you know cont- uh, the panel, right? They've got six yeah. panelists. Uh, Gene Rayburn always had to. The tradition was like you give them a big smooch on the lips. That was just. You just have to do it. You can see it there. They're like, oh, God, here it comes. Creepy old Gene Rayburn. Ah, 78. Those were the days, eh? Go go watch it, kids, on uh, on Amazon Prime. All right. Well, I'm going to throw, I'm going to throw, well, it's it might be my favorite film of all time on into the discussion. Uh, it, this may or may not have been mentioned on this podcast before, but um, the movie that was made for me, 1988, Decline of Western Civilization, Part two, Penelope Ferris chronicling the scene on the Sunset Strip in the clubs like Gazzari's, uh, where you swing through the rainbow, the troubadour, the whiskey, featuring bands like, well, Poison's in it, Joe and Steve Marismith are in it, Ozzy's making breakfast in it, uh, Lemmy, of course, is in it, and then you have bands that never went anywhere like Odin and London. It is just a wonderful time capsule. 
uh, Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. If if we are friends in real life, uh, people have had to put up with me rambling on about this movie forever. I'm sure you've seen it. And, you know, for good reason, it is, I mean, the whole bunch of them. I mean, what an achievement, right? Just the whole, th- the whole project, the Decline uh, series is, I mean, one, two, and three are just, but two is so special. It's so special. I mean, God, Lizzie Borden is in there, right? Uh, you get Megadeth. And they actually interview, I mean, Bill Gazzari is in it. It's, when did that? It we was got a lot 80, of pretty 80, girls here. Then they 88, all come for right? the pretty girls. Yep. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. An extreme, I love this. An extremely intoxicated Chris Holmes of Wasp is interviewed in a swimming pool with his mother by his side. Yeah, it's so good. It's just, it's such a time capsule. It's a major achievement. I love, I love that film so much. When I moved, when, when did I you, moved when did you first see it? Was it like, uh, did you like grab a VHS copy as a kid, and or do you see it in a movie theater? No, I saw it because that came out when I was in college, uh, and I saw it somewhere in Chicago. I don't know if I saw it in Evanston or downtown Chicago, but I, you know, saw it in the movie theater again. Completely made for me. During that period of time, I've already sort of transitioned out of metal because I grew up a metal fan. By that time, I fully transitioned to Husker Du replacements, early mm. Sonic Youth. Pixies are about to come out. I've already, you know, cheese metal was taking over the scene. My bands like Judas Priest, Dio, and Iron Maiden, well, I think was sort of struggling to figure out what was happening in the late 80s. And the Sunset Strip was was about to die. That's the interesting thing yeah. about this yeah. movie. Because you have all these young kids in the movie who want to make it. But Nirvana is about to come along in a couple of years and just blow the whole place up. When we first moved here in 1990, I had to visit all of those places almost right away because I love that movie so much. So I had to go to Gazzari's, yes. go to the Coconut Teaser on Sunset and Crescent Heights. And, and, and by 1990, it was dead. The Sunset Strip metal scene was over. Yeah. And it's just it sort of like I love the I mean, the the cast of characters, it does represent that like that golden age, right? It's like some of the bands that like, you know, poison, uh, is on that. I mean, you still, you've got, I mean, Ozzy is in it. Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons at trashy lingerie on La Cienega. Yes. yes. It's fantastic. You know, just, to you, you can, it just, it, you can feel the sleaze. It's just in every nook and cranny of that film. It's so awesome. Well, so yeah. the Valley, the Valley is littered with the bones of mm-hmm. the young dudes who thought they were going to make it. You know, at one point in, in the movie, I'll just say this for the people listening at home. At one point in the movie, you hear Penelope Spheris ask a young metal dude, like, Oh, what are you going to do if your band doesn't make it? And he literally says to her, well, if you heard my band, you wouldn't ask that question. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you know, cut to that guy working at a hardware store in Chatsworth. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, <laughs> a few years earlier, did you ever see the short heavy metal parking lot? A great I companion. Was- Given to me as a birthday present, of course, made for yes. people listening at home. That is about a scene at the Capitol Center in Maryland, kids waiting to go see Judas Priest. Uh, so you hear the thick Maryland accent as the who I don't do who made the movie. Do you know the person who made the movie? It's a duo, Jeff, Jeff Krulik and John Hain. As they go through the parking lot, uh, they just, you know, they just talk to the kids partying before the show. And it is just fan goddamn tastic heavy metal parking lot. And then they eventually made Neil Diamond parking lot in the same at the they cap did. center as well. 
did. I never saw. I was just like, I'm looking at his credits now, like Neil Diamond parking lot. Yeah. Where's that been all my life? That's a um, fun one too. You know, there's a, <laughs> Harry, there's a Harry Potter parking lot. He's got Harry Potter parking lot to the, where do you get these guys move? This is amazing. Wow. Heavy metal picnic 2010. Uh, you know, uh, Penelope Spheres made a decline for about Oscar. Really? And I, I saw that. that. Well, no one does because uh, she made it. And then, um, Let's just sure. say that Sharon Sharon Osborne watched a cut of the movie and basically said this will never see the light of day. Penelope had a uh, there was a screening at the Egyptian when the Egyptian first opened up again, you know, after being, you know, on mothballs for mm-hmm. decades. Yep. And it was a small group of people and it was fucking awesome. It's just like it's Penelope's take on Ozfest. The fans, mm. the young bands. Ozzy. I think the reason that Sharon shelved it is because she kind of comes off in a weird light. Uh, this is yeah. a while ago, too. So, yeah. but it, it was shot and it was made. That's an interesting throw to what's next on my list is uh, that famous band Robert Frank documentary about the Stones, Cocksucker Blues. And what's interesting is I basically got to remix all his outtakes for my film on Exile on Main Street. But, uh, yeah, it was the 1972 tour, right? It was the Exile on Main Street Tour of America. So decadent, right? Just like one of the most decadent rock tours in or the first great decadent rock tour uh, in in history. And he just made this great, you know, Robert Frank, the great uh, film, filmmaker photographer. Real cinema verite. Uh, it, it just, it makes like Gimme Shelter look like Sound of Music, right? I mean, it's just gritty, black and white, you know, naked groupies, needles sticking out of people's arms. You know, it's it's out there. It's a really cool, but it's a really cool look at the inside of, you know, the, the, the decadence and sleaze of, of rock and roll at that point in time. And the Stones were just like, nobody can see this this is like evidence for the prosecution they were already having trouble like getting into some countries because of you know the mounting drug busts and whatnot so they they shelved it they banned it i think again it's very similar right like frank could show it maybe once a year as long as he was there and you know it it would come on you and then of course youtube would put it out occasionally it'll get yanked down and but uh it's great. It's great. It's a really, I mean, you can probably find it now. It's an excellent, excellent film screened at the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art on my birthday in 2009 with Robert Frank in the building. I don't know if it's been shown since. Now, who see. was Robert Frank historically? The thing that kind of put him on the map, he's a Swiss photographer, documentary filmmaker. The the main His main work that really put him on the map, 1958, he made a book called The Americans which uh, it was the first time like contemporary photography really looked at the underbelly of America. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't stylized. It was, you know, he went coast to coast looking at poverty and small town America. And just, he, it, it was, it was groundbreaking. It was just, he's a groundbreaking photographer. Uh, it's a really influential collection and, and book. And, uh, yeah, he just, he went on to just continue to make films and take photographs. Like 59, he makes a film called pull my Daisy, uh, which is like a, you know, with Kerouac and Ginsburg. Gosh, what else does he have there? I mean, 
it's experimental uh, documentaries. You know, it's just him and his Canon Scoopic, you know, which was used a lot for making newsreels, uh, black and white. A lot of the image, the imagery on the cover of Exile on Main Street are like little clips and cut ups from the film. But uh, yeah, it's just like of another time. They don't make them like that anymore. Um, i'm gonna throw another film on the pile um it's not gonna surprise anybody it was another movie made for me the guys at banger films who i love who make movies about some of my favorite bands of course you no one has to guess it's flight 666 iron maiden chronicling the somewhere back in time tour with bruce dickinson flying the plane all over the world and the only thing i'm gonna say about that movie the reason that I love it so much, it proves that Bruce flies the goddamn plane with the full crew, the full band, and the full set. Uh, I think it's an outfitted uh, 737. Um, but the thing that I love about Flight 666 is it truly shows that Maiden fans are the same people everywhere. Whether you're in Brazil or you're in Mumbai or you're in Los Angeles, Maiden people are the same everywhere. So it really it goes all over the world. And uh, I just love it so much because you just know that like if you're a Maiden fan, you would feel at home in any corner of the globe as long as you're wearing a shirt with Eddie on it. So that's all I'm going to say about that. No, it's great. It reminds me. to I haven't. That's 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 one of the ones I, I have not seen that. It's just been on like the forever queue, and uh, I I will move it up. I've been dying to see that. I love those guys. I love the film they made about Rush. Another movie made for me. Quite great. Yeah. Very long, totally completest kind of filmmaking. I love these guys. And they did uh, ZZ Top, which I think is still on Netflix, which is really great. Came out in 2019. And I think, and maybe you could tell me, because I have a question for you that's very important. Uh, mm. I think that Banger, the dude's Banger, Scott and Sam, I think they're making the ACDC movie. I think. That I do not know. Okay, so let me ask you a quick question before I ask I you hope for your they are. final film. Okay, you say, I hope they are. What? Uh, just give me your wish list. Give me, give me the Stephen Kayak wish list of documentaries that have yet to be done truly specially. It took us forever to get a great Bee Gees doc. Mm. You know? I think the Great Depeche Mode doc has yet to be made. I think that that's a hard one, a- dude. I've ch- I have chased that thing for years. Which one? I was Depeche Mode. I was okay. I was this close uh, when they put out Delta Machine. Of course, you know what am I in the middle of making a goddamn Backstreet Boys documentary? Don't laugh. Um, <laughs> you can laugh. You can laugh. It's okay. Everybody laughs. laughs. Um, it came out great, but like, for fuck's sake, really? Like, uh, because they were just putting the album out. Uh, I had an in, we did a great pitch. The label loved it, but all of a sudden it was just like the tour was gearing up. Uh, the people I was working with at the time couldn't get their shit together to do a proper budget. And, uh, it was not Diane. Uh, it should have been, she would have killed this, but, uh, yeah, it just was like, it didn't quite get the, it didn't quite light the fuse, unfortunately. And, uh, and then I just keep coming at them and, and, you know, and there are certain bands, like they've got their guy, right? Like Anton Corbin does everything for Depeche Mode. He shoots the videos, he takes photographs. So I think, uh, I don't know if it was that tour or the one after they just kind of end up with like a concert film 
with a little bit of like, let's film some fans kind of thing. And it, it didn't quite come off. And then like the cure, of course, Tim Pope mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. directs every, you know, and, <laughs> and actually way back when on their 30th anniversary, I think we're almost at the 40th or maybe we've blown past it by now. I, I had become chummy with Lal Tulhurst, right? He was the original drummer. He lives here in LA now. He actually ordered a Scott Walker t-shirt from my website, like back in the day. And I saw the, I was like, this is the guy from the cure. Like, Hey man, are you from the, you know, are you from the cure? And like, we just struck up a friendship and it was coming up on the 30th anniversary. And he was saying like, I oh, should get in there and try to pitch a, a documentary. But, uh, I, I learned that like, well, you know, Robert Smith is teaching himself final cut pro mm. and, uh, he wants to do it himself. So I thought, Oh boy. Yep. That'll never happen. So that's, it's still in the works. I'm like, Oh God, one day, um, I'd love to make a movie about Kate Bush. I actually want to make a Susan the Banshees documentary. I would basically just give me all the goth bands ever and like, let me work my way through them. That's kind of, I think what I want to do. Bowie, the Brett, Brett Morgan is doing something right now, but it's just, it's not like the Bowie story. I think it's like a Bowie story. That's one of those artists. I think you could have a film a year and they'd all be different and the people would want them. But, uh, yeah, man. I don't know. In a perfect world, I'd love to make a film about this little known Boston band called Human Sexual Response. That's one of those like, you know, no one knows who these guys are. Two great records and then just vanished. Uh, but their big local hit was I Want to Be Jackie Onassis. I don't know if you remember that one. Uh, do not. <laughs> yeah, the album is called Figure 14. It was reissued on CD as Figure 15. With the bonus cut, Buttfuck, an absolute stone-cold classic. Um, it was like 100 people in the band. Some of them were drag queens. They were kind of like Boston's aunt. They were like a dirtier version of the B-52s is what they were. And they were like a real cool Boston band, kind of a collective post-punk, new wave, two sing- you know, girl and guy singer. Awesome, awesome band. Anyway, that'd be a, that'd be a great film. What, do you know anything about The Replacements? Oh I mean, yeah, I, I mean business wise, like your, where your brother, the, your brother, and 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 sister in law have been on me about that. Like, we need to make a replacements film. I don't know. I, that's that's something that, like I'm always curious about. Like those bands that are just sitting there going, you know, we really need. I mean, there was a film done, but it's like they do them without the the band and the music, right? It's like a film about the fans, and you're like, ah, but come on, I want to hear the music. Yeah, that's that was color me obsessed, uh, which is out that's there. Right, is, that's right. What a, what a waste! You can't you can't do a movie about a band without the music. It's, people do it all the time. I don't get it. What's wrong? I with know. People? All right, throw us out your final movie, Stephen, for folks at home to to discover. I was going to add one. It's it's a bit of a, a, a an obs- not obscure. It kind of came out around when I made my Scott Walker documentary. A great, great film called Be Here to Love Me, which is about the musician Towns Van Zandt, made by the awesome uh, Margaret Brown, is a pal. She's made some great films. Uh, This was her only music documentary, and it's wicked good. Towns is great, you know, just like troubled country rock troubadour. It's one of those guys that everyone's covered his music, you know what I mean? Like, he's more popular for the cover versions. Like Emmylou Harris covered his uh, Poncho and Lefty, for example. And it's just a sweet-ass movie. It's so nice. It's like really, really a great one. 
Uh, and that's really all I have to say about it. I just love it. It's one of my all-time favorites, and I just love Margaret. And uh, highly recommend. Highly recommend. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. And that just sparked something in my head, which is I don't think many movies have been made about Johnny Cash, but I don't think the master documentary has been made about Johnny Cash. Really? I feel like there's like a million John- – like every time you turn around, someone's made a Johnny Cash documentary. Yes, they have. But I, for me, I don't think like the mast, like the, the Bee Gees documentary that just came out kind of felt like, okay, here's the all encompassing. Here's the all encompassing Bee Gees movie, even though bits of it, it was are really from other other pieces. You know, it's I just true. mean like like the, 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 the one that is canon, the uh, uh, oh, my God, um, Robert's. Uh, hmm. I see the great thing about doing a podcast is I get to edit all this stuff out. Um, (laughs) Ken Burns country has great Mm. Johnny cash stuff through it. But I felt like Mm -hmm. after seeing that, I felt like "Eh, the master Johnny cash movie hasn't been made yet. Thank you for letting me ramble about that. Okay. Steven, (laughs) you and I could nerd out for seven days straight and probably only take breaks to go get hamburgers. So I am going to say to you right now, thank you for nerding out with me today where tell everyone how they can see shoplifters of the world right now well if you're in new york you can put your mask on and go see it at the quad i just found out it's on some screens uh here there and everywhere so i don't know i'm waiting to get like a list uh it's actually on some screens next weekend if you're uh here in la you want to be a you want a road trip with us we're gonna we're gonna go down to orange county and there's a drive-in screening it's like a pop-up drive-in down there which is hilarious because, you know, K-Rock and Rodney on the Rock were really like, I think that's really where a lot of the British music really, fir- obviously, it's where it first blew up. Uh, I didn't realize that it was Rodney and it was the, you know, the kids in Cal- Southern California really driving uh, the fandom back in the 80s. So we're going to do that. But it's video on demand anywhere, anywhere. You can pre-order it today on iTunes, uh, Amazon, Vudu, blah, 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 all that stuff. Anywhere you get your good video on demand movies uh it'll be everywhere starting tomorrow fucking fantastic so everybody it's just a it's just a really great little movie not little movie it's just a really great movie uh shoplifters of the world uh starring uh, eller coltrane joe manganello pittsburgh's favorite son uh such a great uh, project so congratulations by the way um, thank you thank you thank you and uh, and again, thank you so much for playing the game of the Brandocast, Stephen. Yeah, right on. And to the rest of you, thank you so much for liking, listening, subscribing. Got some more great guests coming down the pike. And of course, the Brandocast is produced by Mr. Richard Sheltinga. So until the next time, cats and kittens. of the world.